Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. I guess because I have a, a very good sort of a technical background, you know, it, it helps with the creative side of things as well. Like, if I can think of something, I can normally figure out a way to shoot it. So it's, and it's just, I've constantly, well, especially with Antarctica, having to figure out systems that'll work in the extreme cold and just a sort of doggedly going at it until I figure it out. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 61. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. One of the really great things about this show is that we get to hear not only from doc industry people from all over the world, but we also get to hear from other doc filmmakers from all over the world who are telling the stories of the world. It's one of the things that has always excited me the most about the podcast. This idea of realizing that there are people like myself, people like you guys, that could quite plausibly now be in every corner of the world doing what we all love doing, documentary. Even in a place like Antarctica, there are doc lifers, or at least there for sure is one that I know of. His name is Anthony Powell. He's a Kiwi who has spent more than a decade in and out of the coldest continent in the world, where penguins and only a handful of internationals work and reside. His latest film, his first full-length documentary, is called Antarctica, A Year on Ice. In our second segment of the show, we'll be hearing about what life is like on this mysterious, cold part of the planet, how one lives and works in this place, and then how exactly one goes about filming in this type of environment. Now... I don't have experience working in Arctic temps myself. On the contrary, I'm more versed in, um, shall we say, the art of shooting in particularly hot and humid environs. And since Anthony will be covering how one goes about making films in the colder extremes, I thought I might talk about what it's like working in the other extreme, really hot places. So I'll be getting our episode started with a list of five tips for shooting in hot environments and harsh sunlight. That coming up in just a few short moments here on The Documentary Life. Alrighty then, let's dive into five tips for shooting in hot environments and harsh sunlight, shall we? As is often the case with most of my lists, these are in no particular kind of order. Starting out with the first one, don't shoot in the middle of the day. Or if you have to shoot in the middle of the day, make sure you're indoors somewhere. Preferably with some aircon, right? There are a couple of reasons not to shoot in the middle of the day. Let's say from noon to uh, about 2.30 p.m. For one, it will be your harshest time for lighting. Unless you're lucky enough to be shooting with cloud cover, you'll be working with blindingly painful sunlight, which will make exposure a massively tricky issue. Trying to expose someone against a bright and shiny sky at this time of the day is absolutely ill-advised. For example, at this time of the day, the sun will generally be straight up in the sky, wreaking havoc on your subject's facial features, and it'll produce wicked shadows as well. And making matters worse, if you're working in a country where people's skin is darker in color, you'll have another issue you're fighting. And that is, in order to get their face exposed, you'll have to open your f-stops up quite a bit. The problem is, that'll then blow out or overexpose most everything around them. 
Of course, if you absolutely must be shooting during this time of day, you'll have to employ the use of ND filters. Many cameras now have NDs built into their cameras. However, your cameras like the DSLRs really don't, so you'll have to buy physical NDs for them. The NDs should allow for easier exposure, and if you're trying to create any sort of depth of field, these will be a must when you're in the outdoors. Without them, you'd have to close your aperture way down, which will then make your focal length that much bigger, putting maybe unwanted objects or areas in focus. Just remember, the NDs are not going to soften any of the unwanted shadows. The sun's harsh light at this time of day, it's going to create these no matter what, so you do want to be aware of that. The long and short of this is, when shooting outdoors, if it's possible, you should be planning your shooting during the mornings and later afternoons. Those times will give you the best opportunities for shooting good footage. Maybe when you pause from your shooting day, just take a long lunch during this time. When we'd be shooting rice farmers in Indonesia or or Cambodia, this was the time of day the entire crew would take an extended break. And I'm talking about the um, the crew, meaning the rice farmers. They certainly didn't want to be doing manual labor outdoors you know, during this part of the day. They'd take a lunch and then a nap before getting back to it. Why not do the same? Wait, did I just recommend a nap on a shoot day? I think I did. Number two, keep your camera cool. A couple of weeks ago, I came across a pretty humorous photo that I shared in the Dockland community forum. It was taken of myself and my crew filming in Cambodia. It was from, I believe it was 2011. It was the first time I'd shot with my Canon 7D in Cambodia. After shooting for a couple of hours, a warning sign started flashing on the camera. The camera had overheated and it was basically preparing itself for shutdown. It was nice enough to let me know ahead of time so, so I could pause with our shooting of, of an interview. In in the photo, we're using these little Chinese-style hand fans, and we're trying to help the camera cool down. Now, considering how much I would end up shooting with the 70 outside in hot and super sunny days in places like Cambodia or Haiti or, or El Salvador, I, I was pretty amazed at how well the Canon did. Unless we were outside in the part of the day that I was telling you to avoid and had been shooting in direct sunlight for a couple of hours— all things considered, uh, the Canons did pretty remarkably. And oh, by the way, as you're about to hear later on in my conversation with Anthony Powell, apparently the Canons do even better in extremely cold temperatures. Anyhow, this is not meant to be a Canon influence moment, although I suppose it certainly sounds like that. What I'm trying to inform you of here is to be aware that your camera will eventually shut itself down if it gets too hot. Now, this isn't a terrible thing that it's shutting down because basically something has triggered it to protect itself. And so it's not going to allow itself to function again until it's good and ready, which generally means that it's had a break from the hot temps. What you can do is keep your camera in the shade whenever possible. If you're outdoors shooting in direct sunlight, keep the body shaded, even if it means draping a piece of cloth over it. And whenever you're not using the camera, turn the power off. Even if you're not actually shooting with it, having the power on, it creates heat, which is what you're really trying to minimize here. Your camera will stay cooler longer, and as an added bonus, your batteries will stay juiced longer. So keep that camera cool, Doc Lifer. You don't want to be on a shoot without, you know, a working camera. Number three, wear appropriate clothing. Another thing that's a must when working in extremely hot and sunny environments is your clothing should say proper clothing. Don't just automatically assume that because it's a beautiful hot and sunny day out, you can just roll out there with your short sleeve t-shirt and a pair of shorts. Depending on the culture you're working in, shorts like this may not even be acceptable or appropriate uh, appropriate clothing. Or wearing a cotton t-shirt, it can actually be a really sweaty thing to do. A loose fitting button up shirt might be a better choice. And added bonus, you'll look a little more professional. You might even look British doing this. I had my fixer in Haiti once inform me of this. He said to me, you look British today, Chris. I asked him why he said this, and his reply was, today you are wearing a nice shirt with buttons. That's British. Yesterday you wore a t-shirt. That's what Americans like. Ah, the world's perception of one another. Isn't it great? <laughs> An accoutrement of choice for me now is, is to wear a shirt that will wick the sweat away from my body. For anyone unfamiliar with the term wicking, wicking essentially works by utilizing a thing called um 
capillary action. The fabric is made up of, of these tiny tubes that moisture will, it'll move it up into the fabric and away from the body. The idea is similar to a candle's wick, which draws the wax up the wick to the flame to be burned. You can get clothing that'll do this wicking nowadays at really at any outdoor goods store. I, I own a few pairs of shirts and, and a couple of pairs of pants that will do this. Number four, wear sunscreen. And speaking of wearing the correct clothing, I'd like to now tell you a little story. I once wore a pair of flip-flops when I was shooting in Cambodia. Talk about rookie mistake. Now, yes, this seems like a no-brainer. I get it. Why would anyone ever wear flip-flops on, on a job or a shoot? I once was working on a commercial gig, and, and one of the PAs came to set wearing a pair of stylish flip-flops. She was promptly sent home for a change of footwear, which makes sense, right? You're, you're working around heavy and serious gear. Even C-stands could, could crack your toe if you're not wearing some kind of shoes. But I was in Cambodia. We weren't operating with any grip and electric or anything like that. We were just outside roaming around the countryside getting some nice B-roll. Flip-flops or sandals are like the choice of footwear in that part of the world. So I figured, you know, why not do as the Cambodians do? And everything went fine during the day. Nothing fell on my toes. I didn't step on anything sharp. But, but later on when we got back to the hotel and I'd showered, I'm realizing that the tops of my feet have started burning. I look down, and, and, and to my horror, they're beat red. They are badly, badly sunburned. Now, you should know that as part of my morning ritual when shooting in hot and sunny places like this, I always apply copious amounts of sun protection before heading out for the day. It's not even a question of whether to wear it. It's just a question of how much. Well, the problem that one particular day is that I forgot to put sunblock on my feet. Why wouldn't I have forgotten? I'd never had to do it before because I'd, I'd always worn shoes or boots outside. I'd never had to think about putting any kind of sun protection on my feet. I tell you this story not only to illustrate the necessity for wearing the proper clothing, you know, when shooting outdoors in the heat and sun, but to also stress the importance of good sunblock when working in the outdoors. Always wear sunblock when you work outside and, and always remember to bring extra sunblock with you if you're somewhere far from home. It may be really expensive to buy or worse, just not available anywhere. The last thing you want is to have to be working with a really bad sunburn. It can be extremely uncomfortable and, and it can increase your dehydration, which is also about the last thing you want to be happening when working in the intense sunlight and heat. Now, my final tip is to bring a reflector. A piece of gear you'll want to remember to bring with you that's going to help you when working outdoors in the sunlight is a light reflector, and preferably one that will not only reflect light for you, but will also have a diffusion option as well. Oftentimes, one side of the reflector will be made of reflective material, while the other will be made of, of a diffusion-type material. The reflector side will allow you to direct some fill light where needed, so when you're out working in the sun, you might need to fill in some of those harsh shadows that's where you'll want to have a reflector on hand. Either someone can be holding it while you shoot, or if you're shooting an, in, an interview outdoors, you can usually rig the reflector to a tree or lean it on a post or, or whatever, since the movement of your subject on camera will be pretty minimal. Again, the reflector will allow you to fill in those unwanted shadows that may be created by the harsh sunlight conditions. It works the same way as a simple bounce card would in the studio. And the diffusion side will allow you to sort of soften or diffuse some of that direct sunlight on, on, on a wider area. So if you're shooting an interview in the outdoors, you might have someone hold up or find a way to rig the diffusion above the subject. It will be placed between the direct sunlight and the person. This will help ease the harshness of the sunlight and kind of allow the light to fall on your subject a little more evenly. So make sure that a reflector is part of your kit when you travel to a particularly sunny setting. Let's go over that list of five tips for shooting in hot environments and harsh sunlight one more time. One, don't shoot in the middle of the day. Two, keep your camera cool. Three, wear appropriate clothing. Four, wear sunscreen. And five, bring a reflector. I'll make sure to post this list up on the show notes for this episode if you'd like to see it written out. Show notes for all episodes can be found by visiting our website at www.thedocumentarylife.com. 
Now that you're no doubt all hot and bothered from my segment on shooting in the heat, let's cool it down a bit with our conversation with Antarctica documentary filmmaker Anthony Powell. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life. If you're anything like me, you appreciate a good checklist. I've got all kinds of checklists in my life. Every night, I'm creating my to-do list for the next day. Whenever we go camping, I have a camping checklist. Whenever I go out on a shoot, I have a checklist with all of the gear, shots, and b-roll that I'll need. So one day, I thought to myself, why not some kind of checklist for doc filmmakers? And so I came up with one. It's called the Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, and it's completely free to any doc filmmaker who wants to learn the essential aspects of making a documentary film in the modern day industry. I am all about empowering documentary filmmakers, and this course does just that. It is my sincere hope that this free course will help make your doc film's journey truly the exhilarating and rewarding experience that it can and should be. Enroll today for free by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses. I am pleased to have on Anthony Powell, a DP and documentary filmmaker who has spent, well, let's just say an awful lot of time in a very cold part of the planet. Anthony Powell, it's an honor. Welcome to the program. I am I am absolutely glad to have you here and, and very eager to get into our discussion today. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. What came first for you, Anthony? Antarctica or documentary filmmaking? In my case, it would have been Antarctica. Like I was always interested in cameras and photography, but it never really became a really big part of my life until I started going and working in Antarctica as a communications technician. So I was just going down there and just having all these amazing experiences Mm -hmm. and especially spending the winter there because you see a lot of uh, photos and films about scientists doing their research in the summertime, but the the skeleton crew that stays there over the winter, uh, you just don't generally hear about that. And it was a story that had never been told. And I was just having these amazing experiences, seeing these amazing sights and just <laughs> just felt that um, no one had ever really told that story. And uh, I just, yeah, just felt driven to sort of try and capture that and convey that to the people back at home and to the wider world in general. Paint a picture of, of what Antarctica is all about in terms of a human perspective. Who exactly is down there and, 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 and what are, what are people doing? It's interesting because when it, when you talk to people about Antarctica, in all news stories, you always see scientists in Antarctica um, yes, doing right. whatever research. But <laughs> yeah. uh, realistically, scientists are actually fewer in number than the rest of the workers who are there just to keep the places going. Mm. So just just to maintain a research base in Antarctica, you need the cooks, to the, you need the cleaners, you need the mechanics, the electricians, the communication technicians, the field guides. Is this, this massive infrastructure just to support a few scientists to do their research. So there's um, yeah there's an awful lot that goes on and during the summertime at the South Pole is you know opposite to the northern hemisphere. So yeah. our typical summer season runs from October through to February, okay. and that's probably when 98% of the research happens and it's. 24-hour sunlight in the middle of summer. Uh, people are just going full speed, nonstop, getting all their research done. And then uh, over the winter, we basically just drop back to a skeleton crew and we're doing maintenance, keeping the base going and just going through all the equipment that the scientists use over the summer and just making sure it's all fixed, ready to go for the next uh, research season the following summer. So it's... Um, you know, com- diff- completely different pace over the winter, but it's still the really important work mm-hmm. because 
if a scientist might be planning for a couple of years to come down and do a research project that might last uh, four weeks and they get there and they find some piece of equipment doesn't work for whatever reason, that's a couple of years' work down the drain. So wow, doing wow. that maintenance work over the winter is uh, pretty critical as well. Give us a, sort of a day in the life of Anthony Powell. Um, describe what your work is there. Typical day in the life. Uh, well, my first job there was doing just about everything to do with telecommunications right. at Scott Base, which is the New Zealand base. So I was looking after the radio equipment, the phone system on base, the satellite earth station, which provides a link to the outside world, HF radios, pretty much anything electronic. So, you know, my typical day would be get up at about seven in the morning, go and have breakfast, uh, go to work, see what's broken, what scientists uh, need for their gear to take with them out when they're going out doing their research, mm. uh, uh, ongoing maintenance. But uh, realistically, over the summertime, you're, you're pretty much like the boy with the finger in the dike. You're just going from one job oh, to the wow. next constantly all day so at what point do you start playing with your cameras in, in antarctica uh pretty much uh whenever you can it's um you know my some of my favorite times have been like i'll be going out to fix a radio repeater on top of a mountain and a helicopter will drop us off and you know they're coming back in an hour or something and so you're working frantically to get your job done but occasionally it might be a 10 minute job to get it fixed and then you've got an hour to play around and mm. just relax and take photos, do a bit of filming. Uh, once in a while you'll actually get a weather delay because there'll be bad weather between where you are and uh, back at the base. Right. So the helicopter can't come and get you. So you're stuck on top of this mountain all day, wow. twiddling your thumbs and quite often the people I'm with uh, get driven crazy by that but they're the times I really love because you actually get time to relax and take it all in properly so yeah it's it's sort of do what you can when you can. At what point do you start thinking that uh, making a documentary film there in Antarctica is something that you might like to do? It was um, kind of a progressive thing for me I started out shooting a lot of time lapse pretty early on okay I, I kind of assumed that yeah yeah I was, I was one of the first people to um start shooting digital time lapse uh yeah. i had the idea for it when digital cameras just got to the point where when, when the cameras were getting up around five megapixel mm. i thought you know these pictures are actually good enough to hold up as a still frame on a movie screen ah. so um you know, and I'd always been fascinated by time lapse um, mm. since I saw uh, the original um, 1960 version of the H.G. Wells's The Time Machine oh, okay. on, on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon on TV as a kid. And I was just fascinated by the time lapse shots and that. So yeah. when the cameras came along, I thought, well, this is an affordable way to be able to actually do it yep. and get something that'll be um, good enough to hold up on a movie screen. Right. So I just started experimenting and building my own timer controllers from my electronics background. And uh, yeah, just over a period of a couple of years, got much, much better at it, figured out all the comings and goings and how to power the cameras and the shortfalls and uh, just sort of grew from there. And I was shooting time maps for probably about five years before I felt that I really had the landscape captured reasonably well and kind of progressive, progressively over that time I thought yes there's there's actually enough here to make a feature length film out of and then I spent the next couple of years after that uh, once the video technology had caught up mm. uh, shooting with um, a lot of it, I shot the video on the Canon 5D2 yeah. uh, and a um, couple of other cameras as well because uh, it was nice and portable. I could just put it inside my jacket and film on the fly when right. I was going out doing other work. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, Anthony, when did you start talking to people? When did you start actually recording interviews on camera? And what was that like for you the first time you started to do that? Yeah, that was interesting because it was basically about the last two years before I put the film out, I started recording people and concentrating on the people story to go with the visuals. 
And initially, I just put up a notice on the local notice boards at uh, both Scott Base and McMurdo Station and said, hey, if you want to be on camera, I'm working on this project, let me know. And it was, you know, I had about 15 people that I lined up and recorded and um, for the sake for the sake of um, getting things condensed down, you know, I ended up cutting a bunch of them just for, uh, you know, to make things fit the narrative a little bit better, not have too many faces. And um, a lot of people have commented to me how they were really impressed at how open people were on camera to me. Um, I guess that's because I knew them all personally and they felt safe just saying ex exactly what they thought. We're gonna open the door right now. It's a little bit like opening up the door to another world. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. Ah! <laughs> middle of summer and right now it's the middle of the night. It's the middle of winter and right now it's the middle of the day. The film is Antarctica a year on ice. There's a um, there's a woman in it who says uh, her quote is I wish I could share what it looks like with people because most will never see anything like this. You have done exactly that with your documentary. Was that always your intention to show people the things that you and, and other and a few people on this planet were seeing? Yeah, that that was a really big part of it uh, because you know it's it's just so hard to convey in words, or even still photos. It's just something that's really hard to capture. That's one of the things where I found that time lapse came mm. came handy because it just sort of conveyed a lot more of that sense of uh, grandeur, sort of conveyed what you were feeling, not necessarily seeing with the naked eye. Right, right. It seems like we uh, we have a mutual colleague, um, fellow uh, Kiwi filmmaker Costa Boats. And and I have to tell you, I, I, I when I when I dis I did not discover that you guys um, knew one another until the end credits of, of the film. And uh, I understand that he was involved in, 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 in some consulting capacity. And, and after I realized that, I reached out to Costa, who we, of course, we've had here on the show. Um, and and, and I, if, I, if I may, I'd like to read something he said about you, Anthony, that, that, uh, that I think is really great. And, and apparently it describes you quite well. Yes, I do know Ants, a fine proponent of the Kiwi DIY ethic. He did some extraordinary things to get his film made, and even more extraordinary things to get it out into the world and seen. A very nice down-to-earth guy. Possibly an archetype for indie doco filmmakers of the next couple of decades. Mm, wow. Anthony, I, I have to ask you, what is an archetype for indie doco filmmakers of the next couple of decades? What do you think Costa means by that? Hmm, yeah, I'm not sure. I, uh, it's I, a great I, sentence, I, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I am very uh, self-sufficient in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, just willing to... You know, from because I guess because I have a, a very good sort of a technical background, mm. you know, it, it helps with the creative side of things as well. Like, mm. if I can think of something, I can normally figure out a way to shoot it. Um, so, it's, yeah, right. It's just, I've constantly, well, especially with Antarctica, yeah. having to figure out systems that'll work in the extreme cold and just. I sort of doggedly going at it until I figure it out, you know, and just some, sometimes there will be a particular shot I want and it's taken me a couple of years to get it uh, just through trial and error, that yeah. sort of thing. But, um, and I, I assume guess. he's, ob you know, he's also referring to here, you know, sort of the obvious when you're in a place like Antarctica and, and anyone who sees this film, you are in the film. And so we can see you a little bit here at work and, and your voice is, is obviously present throughout, but it's obvious that this is a DIY sort of film in that there's no crew there working with you. This is you and you are making the film about your observations of Antarctica um, through not only your voice, but the testimonials, of course, of, of the people that you, your subjects of your film. But, but I assume he's also, you know, 
when he's talking about, I guess, this archetype for indie doco filmmakers, you are doing everything, were you not? Yeah, so it's, yeah, when it, when it came time for uh, post-production, initially I'd uh, approached the guys at uh, Plan 9 who did the music. Right. Uh, great, great name, by great the way. Bunch of, yeah, great bunch of people to work with. Um, because they'd actually just responded to one of the uh, clips I had up on YouTube and oh, wow. I went to their website and uh, looked at some of the stuff they were doing. I thought, well, these, these guys could be a good match. So I just mm. sort of wrote to them and said, hey, uh, you guys interested in uh, collaborating on this uh, project I'm working on, looking at doing a feature film about Antarctica? Mm. And they were really keen. They thought it was a great idea. So then, of course, they knew people like Costa and and uh, Chris Todd, who worked in the same building, was the dialogue editor. Mm. Um, and then, uh, of course, contacts with Park Road Post over the road and uh, Tim Preble, who did the uh, sound design, also worked in the same building at the time. Mm. And basically, once they all saw what I was what I was up to, they were all keen to jump on and help. Right. Uh, so it was. Um, it was interesting sorting out the funding because I did a Kickstarter campaign initially, okay, and uh, that plus my own money putting in in towards it that that got us a, a two-hour cut with a basic stereo soundtrack that was pretty good. Yeah, and then I was able to take that to the New Zealand Film Commission, and once they sat down and watched it, they gave us additional funding to be able to um, you know get it down to a uh, one and a half hour cut yeah. and then get a proper surround sound and color grade and pack road post which is uh, of course Peter Jackson's post-production company right they saw what we we're up to and they were keen to help out so um, they gave us pretty good rates to um, basically get the full surround sound mm. mix and color grade so we had Academy Award winning sound mixes working on it it was wow. just yeah great experience in the film, there is, you know, early on, there's a montage of you uh, prepping gear for filming in Antarctica. Um, tell us what, uh, why don't you share with, with, with my listeners, what are the considerations that you had to make um, and what's the gear that you packed? And, uh, and and then maybe a little bit of an idea of, of, of what you had to modify when going back into, um, back into Antarctica to do this film. Yeah, a, a big thing about uh, working in Antarctica is uh, a lot of the time you're very limited on uh, the weight you can take with you, the amount of equipment. So yeah. if you're tra- flying somewhere to the top of a mountain in a helicopter, you know, you literally just got what you can put in a hand carry bag, one little bag or mm. even hang around your neck. So. Um, there's there's no massive tripods and you know sound systems. Uh, it, it, you know you're very limited on your lens choices. Just a couple of lenses with you. That's it. So uh, you do need to be creative. So that's where I found that um, shooting with the DSLR was great because it was so compact. Yeah. I could just whip it out of my jacket, throw it on a tripod. Um, if I was you know, working on a repeater, I, I could just throw it on a tripod, take a minute, set it running on a time lapse of the local scenery, get my work done, and then uh, go back and then the extra time, then go shoot a little bit more. Um, but when it comes to um, motion control systems, uh, of course, there's a lot of commercially available stuff now that's really great, but I was building my own from scratch. Wow. And of course, the, the other thing with most your motion, motion control systems, they'll have rubber drive belts and plastic components that when you get down to 40 below, they're just going to freeze and snap. So <sighs> the things I build are just metal on metal, solid, uh, you know, bearings, uh, stainless steel worm drives, just rock solid things that you can basically put, put your full body weight on and won't move a millimeter sort of thing. Oh. Anthony, do you have any do you have any stills of of you either building some of that gear, the motion control systems that you can share with us? Um, is that something that you have? Because I would love to put that up in our show notes for the episode. 
Yeah, I can uh, send you a few photos. That'd be great. That'd be great because that, that my listeners would, would definitely uh, like to take a look at that. I, I know I would. Let me ask you this. What what were you doing in anticipation or did you uh, have any sort of backup for if some of your gear goes down? Like what if, what if, what if the DSLR goes down? What if your Zoom recorder goes down? What are you doing? What, what, what did you have anything as a backup? Or were you going to rely on, on, on your your electronics knowledge? It was a combination of both. Like the equipment I built myself, it was you know pretty easy to do repairs for me. But yeah. for uh, for the likes of the DSLRs, um, you know, I generally broke one or two cameras a year just through either wearing out the shutters from the time lapse or mm. um, just uh, general abuse of having them, you know, take a dive in the rocks or something when a storm came up or uh, whatever. And there'd be quite a few times yeah. I'd be, uh, I'd leave them out overnight doing a time lapse shot, and a storm would come through, and I'd be digging it out of a pile of snow in the morning. But Whoa. most of the time, it's fine. You just brush it off, take the batteries out, and let it dry for a couple of days, and wow. it's fine. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. They could take that kind of beating. Did you have backup cameras with you? And I'm asking this because, yeah. I mean. What's the situation for you, Anthony, if a camera goes down and, 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 and you can't prepare it yourself? Uh, I don't know what, if any kind of postal service you guys have there. So it's not as if you can just send the camera back for repairs and, and, uh, and work in that fashion, right? No, well, especially over, over the winter time, yeah. we've basically got six months where we're completely shut off, no plane flights in or out. So pretty much what you've got is what you step with. So mm. typically I'd take about four DSLRs with me for the winter mm. um, and then you know, just go from there. And I certainly intentionally got to the point where I'd do riskier and riskier things because I found that, you know, although occasionally I would destroy a camera, yeah. You know, maybe after the twentieth time of doing something semi-dangerous with it before you destroyed it, mm. but you the shots you got from it would be worthwhile. That reminds me of a time um, I was working on a, a a TV series in in that was being shot in Portland, Oregon, and I remember, and this was shortly after the DSLRs really became a, a big thing on the filmmaking scene, and I and 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 the TV show was all shot with a with with red cameras, and there was one particular scene where they needed to blow up a, a particular part of a building. And, and as part of production costs, they essentially bought 20 DSLRs, loaded them up with their with media cards, blew up the building. None of the cameras, of course, survived, but the cards all did. And so they got their footage from the inside of that room. And I thought, wow, this is where that's headed. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, since then, you've got the various action cams and stuff that, yeah. are, that are starting to get pretty good now. So you can substantially reduce the the financial risk there exactly anthony tell me something as a doc filmmaker that we wouldn't necessarily know about filming in antarctica and maybe it's something that you discovered while you were there and wished that you had known prior to to going back the the biggest thing is is battery life over the winter mm. like summertime in the area w where we are the the temperatures are typically around about freezing but over the winter we're dropping 40 50 60 70 below yeah. uh, the peak of winter and around, around about uh, 40 below which is the same in celsius and fahrenheit is is really the crunch point for mm. a lot of the equipment um most most cameras will handle 40 below if you've got a good power supply the batteries uh some cameras uh, as soon as you get a little bit below freezing stop working but then there's a bunch of cameras that are still good at 40 below like i found that um my 5d2 was good at 40 below mm. um i've just spent the last year at, at uh, scott base as a full-time filmmaker and I uh, found that the Panasonic cameras were really great at 40 below. They worked just fine. Some of the Sony cameras are good and some not so good. Yeah. I found the A7R2, as uh, soon as I hit about minus 32 Celsius, uh, even with a good power supply, it would just completely shut down shut and down. go and full factory reset at enter time, date, location. 
Uh, whereas, um, you know, these other the GoPros uh, with their internal battery are terrible in the cold, but as soon as you hook up a, a external power supply, they're generally pretty reliable. Oh, so, okay. So it really <laughs> is connected to that battery, which makes sense because I've seen that when I've, I mean, the coldest environment I probably have filmed in is maybe in the mountains in Nepal and uh, and and battery power occasionally was a slight issue I, I tend to be in the op- I tend to work in environments Antony that are the opposite end of the spectrum I tend to work in very hot and humid climes as, as, as a lot of the work that I do is in Southeast Asia and so I'm battling cameras that shut down because it's it's just too 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 bloody hot quite frankly yeah um, so I haven't really worked in too many cold I haven't really filmed in too many cold environments other than yeah like i said up in in the mountains in nepal i guess one of the other things i found out reasonably early on was um i had to actually spend money on good good quality lenses because Mm. uh like your typical kit set lens that came comes with a camera a lot of them will go out of focus and start uh distorting quite badly with their chromatic aberrations right um because the cold will actually just deform the lens especially with the plastic housing and just puts everything out of focus and starts doing weird things whereas if you spend the uh the money for the professional grade lenses with the you know full metal housings and everything uh, they're pretty reliable over the full temperature range To say that your 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 time lapse work is extraordinary, um, quite honestly, is is a bit of an understatement. And I'm definitely going to put some um, some examples of your work up in our show notes for this episode. If you could give us maybe a concise sort of how to time lapse um, that you're doing in a place like like Antarctica, and let's use. Um, you did a lot of work with the skies because the skies are are just brilliant there with the seasons. And I would love to hear a, a setup of what your time lapse is if you're shooting a sky in a place like Antarctica. So I guess the main main thing I would do would be actually just to stop once I got to the location, pick out the shot I want to do, but then just observe it for about 10 minutes and just see what's going on. Uh, how fast the clouds are moving, uh, what's in the what's in the shot, and then a lot of local knowledge uh, comes into play as well. Like uh, the more you know an area, the better you will to get and get the shot. Mm. So you know, like I know from experience that the uh, smoke plume coming out of Mount Erebus, if I shoot that at four or five second intervals, it's going to look good. Uh, if a lenticular cloud is blowing off the top of the mountains, typically about 10 seconds is good. If, um, if I'm tracking the sun going across the sky with a wide angle lens, I might go for 30 seconds or even a one minute interval if I want to mm. do an extra wide shot. Mm. So a little bit of experience is involved, but then like knowing things like the local tide cycles for the uh, the sea ice moving up and down with the tide. Mm. So it's just lots of local knowledge and then just, of course, just observing the scene and seeing how fast the clouds are moving. Uh, you know, if you can discern visible movement over a few minutes or if they're barely moving at all. So a lot of that uh, will play into the, the interval for the time lapse, which is a, a huge requirement. Then, um, of course, it's a full manual setup. So typically, unless it's going with a day-to-night scene, uh, full manual exposure, mm-hmm. uh, manual focus, uh, manual white balance, manual everything, uh, just to make sure that you're going to remove any uh, flickering from the image from one image to the next. And then I'll also normally shoot slightly wider than what I want in the final picture because a lot of the time I'll find something will happen in frame that will slowly move to the edge of the shot. Yeah. So there's a little bit of um, adjustment to, you know, to play with there. And, of course, always shooting 
full resolution and raw pictures. Uh, doesn't matter what the camera is, I'll, I'll always shoot full resolution raw. Yeah. Because I found a long time back, like when when the tr people were transitioning from standard def to high def, uh, I found that you know basically all of a sudden standard def uh, footage pretty much became worthless. Right. So. Um, and I could see that eventually down the road that was going to, you know, upgrade to 4K. Mm. So, you know, for since about 2008 onwards, I've always shot full resolution, uh, raw footage. Yeah. And uh, all that footage from the last 10, 12 years I've got now is still can be updated to 4K footage and wow. retains its worth. Okay. And, and, and again, if you have uh, any stills of maybe a time-lapse, a still of, of your time-lapse setup, I would love to use that um, in the show notes for the episode as well. So let's talk for a minute about how one goes about actually filming in a place like Antarctica. Um, if one of my listeners, for, for instance, they have a great, great idea, a great story that they want to film in, in, in Antarctica, how does that work? Like, like, do you have to be sponsored by a country or an agency? I mean, I assume this is a, that, that there's a process here. Uh, tell us a bit about that. What is it that we need to do? Yes, yeah, so basically you have to be, you can go there as a private expedition if you want to, but the country you come from has to sign off on all the permitting because of the Antarctic Treaty. Of course, if you come from a country that's not a member of the Antarctic Treaty, there's nothing to stop you going there and doing what you like. But as uh, most countries have signed on to the Antarctic Treaty now, you basically have to come up with a plan uh, to show that you're going to you know, have minimal environmental impact. You've got your processes in place to not interfere with the wildlife, to not leave any pollution behind. So typically what happens is most people will actually end up going through uh, the likes of the National Science Foundation in the United States, which runs the US Antarctic program, or in New Zealand, it's uh, Antarctica. New Zealand is a government department which runs uh, Scott Base. So that's your normal application process. And they have uh, programs in place that actually support artists and writers, and they also have media grants, which are typically are non-financial. It's just purely logistical support to get there and go and film. And they'll put out um, releases once or twice a year saying we're now accepting applications. So it's like in the United States, if you search for the National Science Foundation Artists and Writers Grant to Antarctica, I actually went down for a summer season on that where I actually filmed a lot of the summer footage for my movie because at the time I was doing back-to-back -back winters working at McMurdo Station and that allowed me to round out the footage for some of the summer projects. And in this last year, I've actually just spent the year at Scott Base in Antarctica as a full-time photographer, filmmaker. I came up with a proposal to do some work for them as well as film for myself. And yeah, that was a great experience as well. Will you, um, I guess you've already answered this, will you continue filming in Antarctica? Obviously you, you, you are, you're currently working on a project and I'd like to hear a little bit, a little bit about that. But I'm curious if, if you think about documentary filmmaking and stories outside of, of that continent or if that's where you want to be telling your stories. Yeah, I definitely um, have a lot more stories that could be told from Antarctica. Uh, some, a lot of it, uh, you know, more the nature wildlife side of things. But now uh, lately, um, also be getting, been getting a lot more into supporting scientists through visual means. So, like, I've just been building some equipment for uh, the University of Canterbury to help them to uh, document wildlife over extended periods of time. Wow. So, um, like, building up solar power supplies and then camera systems that can record high-def video for weeks on end, non-stop into a local hard drive wow. in a box kind of thing. So, you know, you can... 
it sort of it can then sort of double up as being both footage that is mm. helping with the research, documenting what the wildlife is doing, but then also uh, can just help with the uh, storytelling documentary medium from my point of view. So it's kind of a win-win situation. A lot of what we've talked about really kind of a, kind of really does describe what what Costa, how he referred to you as a, a fine proponent of the key the Kiwi DIY ethic. Uh, and and I wonder if if do you um, do you do your sort of research like like how much are you watching documentary films, Anthony, and how much are you actively seeking and trying to learn information outside of the technical aspects? Um, say something like storytelling. Are you actively trying to um, to learn to become a documentary filmmaker, a better documentary filmmaker in that way? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely trying to learn more about the uh, storytelling uh, side of things, yeah. which uh, I, I have been trying to focus more on. Uh, one, of, one of the things I intentionally did when I made my film was when I got Simon Price on as an editor, mm. was I think that was key because he was able to look at my footage objectively from a point of view of someone who knew nothing about him. Right, Costa mentioned Simon uh, in the email, that's right. And, uh, you know, getting him to look at that and uh, being able to just sit down and say, okay, no, I'm not interested in that, that that means nothing. Or yeah. occasionally, you know, we'd go back and forth and I'd explain it, then he'd go, oh, okay. Then we'd put it into context and he'd be able to, you know, get that in the- Are you building uh, some sort of components back there right now? It sure sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's guys with the- uh, scaffolding who have uh, just uh, put the new roof on the house here <laughs> okay i thought maybe there was just a new a new device that you were constructing already in the in the course of time of this conversation i thought wow man i, I would love to get a, get some photographs of that and see that work <laughs> yeah. yes they're uh, progressively moving around the house and they've just uh, got right outside the window here now yeah, nice nice well we're right on time then oh yeah. man anthony it's it's been a great conversation conversation uh, as we wrap up here are there any sort of parting words of wisdom that you might have for um for a documentary filmmaker that's working in an environment um something like a place like antarctica what's what's something that comes to mind that we should know um i guess for me the biggest thing is uh persistence keep at it um you know just keep at it figure it out and um yeah take the time to stick at it the man is anthony powell and his film is antarctica a year on ice anthony uh thank you so much for agreeing to this conversation it's a wonderful film i'm so glad that i saw it i feel like i know something about that continent absolutely i know that i I know something now that i or many things that i never did before i have a different appreciation and i'm sure that's um, a part of as a doc filmmaker that's what we uh, often set out to do is is to enlighten people on a part of the world or a culture or people that are doing something that uh, uh, we might not know about and uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program today yeah, my pleasure see you Chris bye bye Don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.